arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Senor, senor, a word about Martin Vasquez. Martin is content to carry out his master's orders, as he's done since Spain 500 years in the past. Neither man has aged with the alternate realities. It's taken Martin hundreds of years to finally have his fill of Ricardo. In the reality Ricardo created with the entities to personally punish Peter, Martin witnesses firsthand what Ricardo has done to Peter and his family. In the past, Ricardo has been distant from his transgressions. But as of late, with the killing of the woman in France, he's become increasingly sadistic. As Peter fights back and Ricardo responds in kind, Martin doesn't understand why Ricardo is obsessed with making Peter suffer, all because of a challenge back in Westerly in the first timeline. And more suffering with Jeannie's addiction, which she never experienced in the other time. Proof of what Ricardo's controlling dominance could do to a normal individual. As we shall see in tonight's episode, Peter thrusts himself into Ricardo's world, and that confrontation will stir even more hatred inside Ricardo. He ups the ante, but once again, Peter is clever and lucky. And now, episode four of A World Without Her by Robert P. Fitton. The roads near Jeannie's Bel Air estate were blocked by police vehicles and yellow caution tape. Curtis parked the Hummer and then merged with Peter into the contingent of reporters, cameras, and more security people along the Ivy Wall perimeter. Reports all afternoon were vague concerning Jeannie's condition. One station reported her lingering in a coma, while other accounts talked about an improved status. Peter, coming over here could be a mistake. What can we really do? asked Curtis. Peter squinted and then focused on the group by the huge iron gates. I don't know what we can do, Curtis. One date with her and they're not going to let you in. We don't even know if she's in there. Peter nodded and walked past a TV station's oversized white van. He gazed up at the black microwave dish on the roof as a woman spoke into the portable camera in the middle of the road. Police held back dozens of fans along the yellow plastic tape and more cops were looped in front of the metal gate leading into the estate. The perimeter wall and the wide tree branches hid the estate. He had the overwhelming urge to get inside and kill Ricardo by any means, or he could wait outside and murder Ricardo with a rifle. Killing him from a distance would allow time for an escape. Sir, are you a fan? Peter turned as a reporter thrust a microphone in his face. With the polished glass camera lens only a few feet away and the bright red light on, he realized his words would be broadcast. Yes, I am. Your feelings on Miss Carlyle's hospitalization. Peter paused, gazed at the camera, and then back at the reporter. Like everyone else, I would have hoped that she would be filming up at Mammoth this morning. Do you think this diminishes her popularity as a star? Peter looked at Curtis. No. Her work is on film for everyone to see. She will, I hope, recover and be back. Does her drug use surprise you as a fan? We all care about her, and I'm surprised that those around her did not take the proper precautions to protect her. You mean Ricardo? Yes. Thank you. The reporter moved along the barrier and next spoke to an older woman wearing a purple Jean Carlyle t-shirt. Curtis, folding his arms, smiled. Now you're a celebrity, Peter. Maybe she saw it. The afternoon sun cut through the leaves and branches. He started down the road perpendicular to the front gate. There has to be a way to get to her. She's probably still at the hospital and may not even be in there. Peter stared at his son's half-shaven face and doubtful blue eyes. I'm not worried about her. A group of men in dark blue suits bolted around the corner and down the sidewalk. Peter recognized the short-haired Mitchell from the observatory. Away from the police lines in commotion, they formed an arc. Mitchell then jabbed a gun into his ribs. What the hell do you think you're doing? asked Peter. Sturgis, you're a bigger jackass than I thought. Going on TV like that was stupid. You got nothing on me, 
No, but I will. Walk down that sidewalk and take a left at the smaller gate. Keep following the wall. Peter clamped his fists. Another guy had a gun at Curtis's back. You can't just take us away. You move, I'll kill you and the kid. Peter marched on the sidewalk following Mitchell's instructions, but he veered left at the open gate in the wall. More men were near another gate under the trees inside. What are you going to do with us? You screwed, Sturgis. You and the kid are going away for a long time. We ain't done nothing, said Curtis. He's right. You can't just invent things. Oh, we can and we will. Now shut up and get inside. He shoved Peter toward the guys guarding the gate. Peter and Curtis were roughhoused all across the grass toward a white shingle maintenance house. A wide stone drive swept along the portico and circled up to a huge gray block mansion with three separate wings. Mitchell kicked Peter and he stumbled onto the thick green grass. Peter moved like a crab and then rushed at Mitchell, but the other two men tackled him back to the grass. They held his feet as Mitchell pummeled his face with the gun. Curtis, restrained now by the four men, screamed at Mitchell. They lifted Peter up and Mitchell smacked his face several more times. Blood poured from his split lip. Do you know who Ricardo really is, Mitchell? Do you know he arranges realities? You're a lunatic, Sturgis. He pointed back toward the house. Bring him into the basement kitchen and keep your guns on him and the kid. Tries to leave, shoot him. He manufactures alternate realities, yelled Peter. Mitchell hit him squarely in the jar. Peter blacked out for a few seconds and then looked up from the ground. They dragged him across the grass. The bright sunlight shot across his face as the massive windows embedded within the stone facade passed above him. They whipped his body around and made him walk down a steep stone basement stairway. Someone opened the inside door and he staggered into an older kitchen with long slate counters and chrome pots hanging from the ceiling. He saw the grass and grounds outside the elongated pane windows. Other men forced him to sit next to a frightened Curtis. I'm Peter Sturgis. I live in westerly New York. My wife's name is Jeannie. We live at the end of Spring Street. I have four kids and a dog named Rusty. Hey, shut up, yelled the short guy, and he whacked Peter's temple with his handgun. Dazed, he somehow recovered. You can't, you can't take that life away from me. Peter, stop it, he'll kill you. Yeah, listen to him, Peter, growled Mitchell, now back in the room. Where's Ricardo? I want to speak to Ricardo, yelled Peter. Just shut up, shut up. In the lower corridor's dim light, wearing a blue silk shirt and tan riding pants, Ricardo emerged from the shadows. He had a perplexed look on his face, but smirked when he crossed his arms. Sturgis? Peter leaped from the chair, but the men quickly pounced on him. He swung his arms and screamed as they maneuvered him back into the chair. You took her away! Ricardo ordered the kitchen cleared. When the door closed, he removed a small silver handgun from the side drawer and pointed it at Peter. Sturgis, in just a short time you got to her. I'm impressed. Well, I'm glad. He knows you? asked Curtis. Oh, I know your father very well. He's probably imparted my secret to you. Curtis glanced at Peter. I don't know nothing. Ricardo laughed and waved the gun like a conductor in front of the orchestra. You, Sturgis, are married to someone who is not your precious genie, in the same town where everyone despises you. Congratulations, you succeeded, said Peter. They did exactly as I requested. They? From Cibola? Who are they? How did you find Cibola? Not your concern, Sturgis. You're finished now. I won't let you take her, nor threaten me. What do you care? asked Peter. I don't. I don't like you or what you did to me in Westerly. No man beats me. Peter's lip and cheekbones throbbed. So what happens now? You are going to suffer like you've never suffered before. You have challenged me a second time, and now you will rot. And then, back to Cibola, is that it? Just manufacture another reality. No, I have better plans in this reality, Sturgis. It seems as though you were with Jean at the observatory the other night. I don't know what you're talking about. You gave her a raft of drugs and almost killed her. You liar! He jumped to his feet, but Ricardo assumed a firing stance. 
I gave her the only touch of happiness she's had since you met her. Did you enjoy your pretend wife? I'll kill you. Ah, attempted murder. Another good charge. The media will love that additional story. <laughs> he backed from the room, laughing at Peter, and pointed down at him from the corridor door. His laughter faded as he disappeared down a side corridor. Peter took a step forward, but the guards swarmed in from all entrances. You tell your boss. I don't care how long it takes. Peter wiped the blood off his chin. He is a dead man. Chapter 21 He watched on the widescreen as Ricardo stepped into the sunlight and up to the microphones outside the main gate. Peter and Curtis endured six hours of grilling by petty little Chapter local 21. cops who liked to hit. They charged Peter with a dozen drug felonies, a possible attempted manslaughter charge on Jeannie, and the assault with intent to murder Ricardo. Curtis would be brought up on lesser charges. In a few hours, they would appear in court. They waited in a cordoned-off game room adjacent to the long, glowing pool. On TV now, the plainclothes cop, Reynolds, who had led the interrogation, cleared his throat. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have just arrested a subject contributing to the alleged drug overdose of Miss Jean Carlisle last evening. The suspect, 32-year-old Peter Sturgis from Westerly, New York, will also be charged for the attempted murder of Miss Carlisle's husband, Ricardo, as well as for the possession of a number of illegal drugs and the intent to sell those drugs. Specifics will be stated in front of Judge John J. Medeiros at the arraignment later this evening. An additional statement will be issued at that time by the department. Peter faced Curtis. Welcome to Ricardo's world, Curtis. I, I, I really didn't believe you, Peter. How could you? I hardly believe this whole thing myself. Reynolds stepped back and Ricardo took questions from the press. No, I, I thought we had the drug problem licked. It's unfortunate that scum like Sturgis are allowed to peddle their wares openly in a public place. I just hope he gets what he deserves. Someone from the crowd called out, but Peter could not see him on the monitor. Were you in danger from this man? Yes, I, I thought I was going to die, but I cannot comment any further than that. We'll save that for the courts. I wish the charge was true, said Peter, glancing toward the pool as Ricardo began a self-righteous homily about drug abuse. Peter studied Ricardo, but turned again to the pool as one of the dark-haired servants headed for the game room door. You need a lawyer, said Curtis. <laughs> I need a miracle. The servant, a tray of drinks in hand, easily moved by the police. He picked up some dishes and glasses off the liquor cabinet. At the coffee table, as he bent over to take the cups, a small folded piece of paper casually fell from his hand onto the leather sofa. The servant continued his business, and Peter moved his hand along the cushion. He placed his hand around the paper and then unfolded it. Both asked to use the bathroom. Peter crumpled up the paper into his pocket. We need to use the bathroom. Curtis tilted his head. The cop at the door yelled to someone in the hall. The bronze-skinned servant set down his tray as he walked toward them. There are adjoining bathrooms at the end of the hall. Okay, said the cop. Peter and Curtis and three cops marched in unison with the servant across the game room and into the hallway. Thanks, said Peter. They had just closed the hall door when another door across the room opened. The servant yanked Curtis through the connecting door. Once in the laundry area, he locked the door to both bathrooms and escorted them both to a freight elevator. What's going on? whispered Peter. The servant motioned with his finger to be quiet. He pulled the cable and something clicked below and the elevator ascended upward into the house. The glazed tile kitchen gradually materialized and a gray-haired butler stood over the open slider doors. I don't understand, said Peter. You don't have much time replied the butler. You will proceed directly to the maintenance building, and then you'll see a truck loaded with lawn supplies. Crawl under the top and stay there until the truck stops outside the property again, once the truck stops. But the cops and the media, they're all over this place. Do as I say, or you'll surely be killed. He motioned them through the slider frame. Peter and Curtis immediately dashed across the grass and toppled over the rear tailgate and several fertilizer bags. Peter peeled back the blue tarp and they slid underneath. Less than a minute later, the truck door shut and the engine started. 
Peter closed his eyes as the truck moved forward. The truck bounced across the lawn and the brakes squeaked. The driver talked to several people as the engine idled. Then he moved forward again. They must have left Veer a side entrance because he felt the dip at the sidewalk. The truck veered and accelerated, turned quickly again before pulling to an abrupt stop. Somebody told them to step onto the street. Peter ripped away the tarp and they scrambled off the truck. The green truck immediately continued down a side road as a shiny gray sports car rounded the corner. The side door opened and they climbed inside. The doors automatically closed as fast as they had opened. A young light-haired kid in a white tennis outfit fishtailed forward. Who are you? asked Peter. He maneuvered at sharp angles from street to street for several dozen blocks. I was told to say nothing and to ask nothing. Peter smiled at Curtis. Works for me. Peter felt safer once they were on the freeway ramp. The kid merged instantly into the traffic flow. Then he shifted and whizzed between lanes as he had on the side streets. Peter set his head back and Curtis put his hand on his shoulder. Guess you got your miracle. Chapter 22 Cotto pivoted from the cameras and walked briefly with Reynolds across the lawn back to the estate. Several policemen, running at full speed, met Reynolds near the portico. Captain, they're gone. Well, what kind of bullshit is this? asked Ricardo. That's impossible. This estate is sealed. Get the men around the perimeter wall, screamed Reynolds. And I want a complete sweep of the house and grounds. Ricardo trailed behind Reynolds and the cops as more police raced around the pool tiles with their weapons drawn. How could Sturgis get away? Maybe they would shoot Sturgis on sight. Reynolds questioned his men in the game room. Someone call Martin. I demand to know what happened. Well, they must have gone through these bathrooms and up the elevator, said one of the uniformed men. Reynolds brought him back inside and then into the laundry room. Didn't you check this damn door? Yes, sir, it was, it was locked. Then he must have had help. Reynolds stepped inside the laundry room and stared at the elevator. His radio sounded. Reynolds. Tom, there's nobody on the ground, but a maintenance truck did leave 15 minutes ago. Well, he's dangerous, damn it, yelled Ricardo. He's a killer. You have to stop him. I'm aware of that. Reynolds closed his eyes and talked into the radio. What about the damn truck? Sturgis's description has been broadcast. We're working on the truck tag. Captain, the servant was roughed up, said one of his men back in the bathroom. He says they ran onto the grounds. What the frig? Reynolds kicked the wall. We just announced to the world that we had the bastard. I can kiss my job goodbye. You are exactly right, Captain. Ricardo scurried to the stairs. He climbed quickly to the first floor as a frustrated Martin entered the foyer door. Sturgis is gone, Ricardo. Well, that's real brilliant, Martin. Where the hell are Mitchell and his people? Well, they should be on their way to Mammoth Lake. Martin put his hand on Ricardo's shoulders. Let's just think this through, Ricardo. How far can Sturgis and the kid get? Every cop from here to the Nevada line will be looking for them. If we're lucky, they'll be killed and we'll end this nonsense. Sturgis knows about Cibola. This is your fault, Martin. My fault? Why? Because I'm off the grounds getting Gene out of the city? How is this my fault? Ricardo strutted to the open sliders and surveyed the brightly lit yard. Police and dogs skirted the outside perimeter. Damn him! We should have simply left for Cibola after the Westerly Hotel. Martin grabbed his arm. You had to push it further, didn't you? Not enough you wanted the guy's wife. You had to drag him in here along with us. You messed up. And now Sturgis is out there, Ricardo. A loose cannon, and you only have yourself to blame. Martin exited via the drawing room and then ascended the foyer staircase. Ricardo scooped up the heavy plant stand and smashed it against the sliders. Tiny glass chunks rained across the tiles like shrapnel from a grenade. I'll throw you in hell for the rest of your miserable little life. Chapter 23 Peter opened his crusty eyes when the jet bank threw a few thin clouds near the airport. Curtis remained asleep in the adjacent seat as the plane leveled out. Peter closed his eyes in the glow.
The kid in the sports car had dropped them off in front of a small jet in a darkened area of the Burbank Airport east of the city near the mountains. They were met at 1.30 a.m. by an older, white-haired pilot who quickly brought them inside the jet. He would not answer any questions. Within minutes, the jet swerved onto a side runway and became airborne over the city lights, and then circled over the ocean. For the longest time, Peter studied the stars and followed the lights along the coast toward San Diego. As the night became early morning, he lost his sense of direction. Hey, Peter. Curtis swabbed his eyes and sat up. He tightened his face and turned toward the window. Where are we? I'm guessing we're somewhere in Central America, maybe Mexico. I can't even believe we got out. Curtis put the fluffy green pillow in his lap and fully sat up. You think it was Sybil? Or Martin? Probably Sybil. You know, if we'd stayed there, that cop would have easily have trumped up those charges. We'd be in a jail cell right now. Don't you think Ricardo will look down here? He may not make the connection. Would you assume that two people with no means could suddenly leave for Mexico? I think they'll first search the city and maybe the state. I don't know what Ricardo will do with Mitchell and his security people, if he can figure it out. I wish I could have seen his ugly puss when they told him we were gone. How does he manufacture realities? I don't know. I was brought out of Westerly by a jet a little larger than this. Jeannie and Melvin were there with me. See, we had discovered his activities as a CEO of a company called Rycom. The branch was located near the mountains in Westerly. I heard Martin referring to Cibola and going to Denver, but the state of Colorado is a big place. Hey man, I believe anything is possible, but I just don't understand this. I don't either, Curtis. All I know, I was on that jet with my wife, Jeannie. They injected me with something, and the next thing I remember is waking up next to Roberta Joe in the trailer, and you're in the kitchen. I became this other Pete Sturgis who has never had a job. Before that, I was Citizen of the Year, and, well, that's a stretch. Sure it is. In the other life, I was active in the town, had a lot of friends, and now I'm the pariah of Westerly, just like Ricardo wanted it. How do you ever get back to where you belong, Peter Sturgis? Peter's eyes moistened as he looked out the window. They flew only about 500 feet above the rugged jungle mountains, and the sweeping blue Pacific spread out to his right. He shook his head and laughed as he turned back to his son. Curtis, I'm not sure I can get back. The aging pilot told them they had landed at Puerto Vallarta in Mexico. The outside steers swung onto the tarmac. A short little Latin man in a brown sweater met them outside the jet. He spoke in broken English, knowing who they were, but like the pilot, he would answer none of Peter's questions. They were led to a red van parked between the jet and another aircraft. As the van rumbled across the airport tarmac, the guy began an extended conversation in Spanish with the driver, a dark-skinned little man in a white t-shirt. They looped around the airport and then away from the city of high-rise hotels and extensive beaches up the coast to a narrow, cracked asphalt road. Dense green foliage sometimes scraped the van as the asphalt turned into a winding dirt road that angled upward into the mountains. As the van chugged along at a steady pace through the steep mountain passes dotted with scruffy bushes, Peter smiled at the possibility of seeing Jeannie, but he wondered about the effects of the drugs. Eventually, Ricardo would realize what happened. Only the remoteness of this area and the unlikely possibility of Peter and Curtis having traveled down here allowed them a window of opportunity. With no guardrail, the van tilted precariously close to the sculptured red-soiled cliff in the fast-moving river rapid several hundred feet below. At the crest, a wide stretch of precisely clipped grass boarded several white stucco buildings with red-tiled roofs and a long blue swimming pool. A veranda with glass tables and a few white wicker chairs traced the front facade. An incredible vista of the azure Pacific horizon spread above the lush mountains and palm tree branches. Sybil wore a woven, wide-brim hat, casual beige pants, and her sandy hair flowed over her shoulders. She traipsed down the veranda and hurried over the grass and across the drive's crushed seashells. Hey, that's the woman on TV in front of the mansion, said Curtis. 
Peter nodded as the van came to an abrupt stop. The little man in the brown sweater jumped out and slid open the van door. Hello, Peter. Have a nice trip? asked Sybil. I thought you might be behind this. Peter stepped onto the pulverized shelves. I'm just afraid Ricardo will send his people or the cops down here. Ricardo and the police have already called down here, and I have assured them most effectively, I might add, that I would have people watching the ground should you two attempt travel to Mexico. Then he doesn't suspect that you... God, no. She looked briefly at Curtis and smiled. Ricardo originally hired me. But what about the observatory? Doesn't he know you arranged my rendezvous with Jeannie? Peter, relax. He thinks Jean went up there on her own accord and that I chased her. Believe me, we are in the middle of nowhere here in Mexico. As you saw, it takes a better part of an hour to get to the city. Peter motioned his hand toward Curtis. Sybil, this is my son, Curtis. Hello, Curtis. She extended her hand. I saw you on TV. Well, it's been a nightmare, believe me. She escorted them across the lawn. I apologize for not having sent the helicopter, but I didn't want to risk drawing undue attention. Van started and stirred up the dust before vanishing down the mountain road. What about Jeannie? She's okay. Ricardo did it, didn't he? asked Peter. He had the security people deliver pills to her room. Peter's face flushed and he grinded his teeth. She steered them onto the grass and up to the veranda. You probably heard she's off the new picture. Is Jeannie aware Ricardo took her off the film? She is. She needs you, Peter. Ricardo has ruined her life. I know, he answered slowly. Maria, she said to one of the servants. Senorita, Curtis and I will be having drinks on the veranda while Mr. Sturgis is inside, she said, turning to Curtis. What can I get you? Do you have a cold Mexican beer? Sure. Maria, conquistador, cold. Si, senorita, she said, heading back inside. Curtis, I'll be right back. I just want to bring Peter inside. I'll just take in the view from up here. Curtis produced a goofy lip smile and put his hands in his jeans pockets. Sybil grinned, seemingly amused by Curtis. Peter followed her into the cooler air inside and cut across a wide parquet floor past a glossy black grand piano nestled under a curved teak staircase. I don't think we'll see Ricardo down here, Peter. Assume the new movie will keep him busy. Peter followed her up the stairs. I don't assume anything about Ricardo, Sybil. If there's any immediate trouble, the helicopter is on the pad behind the estate. They'll keep that engine running. I may do that. I'm making arrangements to bring us all to another location even farther away. Good, because he framed me pretty convincingly. I know he did. He has the power, she said, holding the door handle. Excuse me one moment. Let me just make sure Jean is awake. Peter nodded as Sybil poked her head into the bedroom. She motioned with her head and Peter moved inside. Jeannie, propped up on the satin blue pillows against the huge carved wood headboard, beamed when Peter walked in. You're a persistent guy, Mr. Sturgis. The only way to be. Her dark eyes captivated him as they always had. The gentle breeze caught him as he crossed the thick oriental rug and sat on the soft blue sheets. Jeannie, perfumed with the same musk fragrance, opened her arms, and they embraced with a reassurance only both of them knew. Peter, I just can't believe you're here. I'm having trouble believing this myself. Sybil left, and Peter slowly held her shoulders. He brought drugs up to you. Mitchell did. I should have had more willpower. Don't blame yourself. Ricardo is evil. Evil! He doesn't deserve what he has. He recasts the picture. I heard. A man like Ricardo... Sooner or later, he'll make a fatal mistake. I'm only glad he's far away. He's controlled my existence, Peter. I know that. She hugged him again. Listen, maybe tomorrow, if I'm feeling better, we'll go into town. Well, we'll check with Sybil. Absolutely. Peter smiled and then kissed her. He held her cheeks and lost himself in her moist brown eyes. I'm glad you're okay. Well, I'm glad I'm okay, too. She smiled. And I'm glad you're here. Chapter 24. Everyone on the set scattered for a half-hour break. Ricardo remained perched behind the camera, reading the script and noting the few changes with his red pen. He overlooked the script as Martin's squeaky new shoes echoed across the set. Ricardo kept his voice low. 
Did they get him? Etienne Martin wore a white polo shirt. He spoke out of the corner of his mouth. No sign anywhere. The maintenance guy swears Sturgis just left the estate. Reynolds and his people questioned the guy for six hours last night. What are you saying, Martin? He set down the script and stood. Sturgis, did he hide in the truck? Well, I just talked about that with Reynolds. If he hid in the truck and the guy drove him to his home in Glendale, well... Well, what? Come to the point, will you, Martin? Then the cops should have found them by now. Oh, brilliant. That's real brilliant, Martin. He peered over his shoulder as Martin followed. We had him. Damn it, we had him. Had him? Had him for what? Martin grabbed his arm. Listen to yourself. You arrogant, overbearing fool. Ricardo grinned and then laughed fully. I don't think I've ever seen you pissed off like this, Martin. It's beyond that. I want to leave for Cibola. Oh, do you? I'm telling you, you best forget about Sturgis and start a new reality before it's too late. Before it's too late? Ricardo smiled again. He put his hand on his old friend's shoulder. Martin, you worry too much. They'll find Sturgis and jail him. Then he'll rot. Martin flung his hand away. His tired face hung like a confused dog and his eyes reflected his anger. He retreated out the back corridor. Ricardo giggled as he punched out Mitchell's number on the cell and waited. (laughs) Mitch, where the hell are you? We're at the bungalow in North Hollywood. They haven't been back here. The Hummer is still parked out in front of the Bel Air estate. They must be hiding out somewhere. L.A.'s a big place. Ricardo gripped the phone tightly and started down the hall. You listen to me, idiot. You will find Sturgis and the kid. I don't want any excuses. Follow any lead because, Mitchell, if you don't find them, you'll not only be canned, but you'll never work again anywhere. The other guy, Melvin, he left. I only see his name on the itinerary. He left for Wyoming. You follow it up, and I better have answers soon. He cut the transmission as several men, dressed in suits, emerged from a beige sedan outside. Ricardo recognized Reynolds. People trickled to the back of the set, but Ricardo kept his eyes on the approaching men. Should we get that shot lined up again? asked Rodney from behind. Fifteen minutes! When Martin jotted across the lot, Ricardo kicked open the door and strode toward Reynolds. He flipped on his sunglasses in the hot air. Martin gestured wildly ahead and shouted at Reynolds. Yeah, you gotta cut that out. We know what he asked you to come up here. You shouldn't be up here. Get your men and get that car and get it off the set. Ricardo cursed him as he approached. Martin, what the hell is going on here? Martin's head snapped back and the curly-haired Reynolds stepped toward him. I received some information, a phone call. About Sturgis? No, I think we need to talk. Martin stepped between them. Well, let's uh, not implicate anybody. Who was it? Who was it? Asked Ricardo, pushing Martin aside and facing Reynolds. I demand to know who called and what they said. Well, I won't tell you my source, but my source claims that you ordered your security people to bring a bag of drugs up to Gene Carlyle's bedroom at your estate. You came all the way up here because of some phony report like that? You're just trying to save your job because you let Sturgis get away. Reynolds looked at the other two men. Where is your security guy, Mitchell? We can't find him. Looking for Sturgis, as you should be. The man tried to kill me, and he's the one responsible for the drugs. He found the drug bag in one of your estate's closets, said Reynolds. Ricardo deepened his brow and passed a glance at Martin. So what? I hope you had a search warrant. Yes, I did. We will find Mitchell, but I will ask you, I will answer none of these irrelevant questions without my lawyer present. Do you know who you're dealing with, Reynolds? Reynolds moved closer and stuck his finger into Ricardo's chest. I announced on TV that I had apprehended Sturgis, and then he disappears as I'm saying my words. I look like a fool. I think you had Mitchell bring those drugs up to Miss Carlyle. You keep accusing me and you'll have more to worry about than looking like a fool. Are you threatening me? Yes, I am threatening you. Now get the hell out of here or I'll call the studio and have you removed. Reynolds twisted his lips and motioned with his head for his two men to return to the car. 
Ricardo took two steps forward and removed a small handgun from his shorts pocket. Are you crazy? shouted Martin. Ricardo slowly slid the gun back in his pocket. Reynolds doesn't know who he's dealing with, Martin. You're walking a fine line. He's walking a fine line. Ricardo scrambled back to Reynolds' car. Who told you about the bag? No comment. The power window moved upward and the car slowly moved away. Martin grabbed his shoulder. Why would Mitchell inform on himself? It's irrelevant who said what. Can't you see where this is leading, Ricardo? Ricardo locked his white knuckles under his nose. We have to find Sturgis. Call the TV stations, Martin. If he makes any move at all in the valley, someone will see him or the kid. Get pictures fed on the air. Martin said nothing, turned and headed down the boardwalk toward the cottages along the lake. Martin, where the hell are you going? You will implement my orders. Martin did not look back, opened the first cottage door and disappeared inside. Ricardo kicked the asphalt and bared his teeth. Several people watched him from the set. He debated whether to leave Martin behind at Cibola this time. His insubordination and brazen attitude would be his undoing. To maintain his power, he would use Cibola fully against anyone, even Martin. Chapter 25 The street vendors called out to barter as Jeannie and Peter strolled through Centralo Mercado. She wore a blue bandana, sported wide-rimmed sunglasses, and no one recognized her. Being alone with Jeannie had been a distant memory. Just talking to her seemed miraculous. But being a part of her life made him marvel at how certain people were drawn to each other. She pointed toward a huge pink stucco building, and Peter poked his head into the arched opening. A slew of new merchants displayed wares inside. Must be something you want, Jeannie. Oh, heck, I don't know. This isn't exactly the big city. Jeannie wore the sunglasses even inside. The scent of leather filled the air. Newly woven baskets were stacked on the dirt floor. Like circus barkers, the men tried to lure them over. One dark-skinned man in a green silk-embroidered shirt and a woman in a bright red dress stood next to trays and racks of gold and silver jewelry. The man grabbed Peter's arm and reeled him inside as the woman held up long gold chains and a number of rings set in red velvet boxes. Senor, the best rings, the best things for your wife. She seemed to like being called his wife. Peter pointed at a lengthy silver chain with an attached hand-carved metal dove, inlaid in ivory. That one. One thousand pesos. There's an ivory dove. That is the most expensive one, senor. Well, now it is, said Peter. Jeannie smiled again. He removed 300 pesos and placed it in the guy's callous hand. Ah, 300 pesos it is, senor. Mucho gracias, mucho gracias. Peter whispered to Jeannie. He would have taken a hundred. Big spender. Peter draped the chain in his hand as they sauntered around the indoor market and ignored the other merchants. Once outside, they followed the pass through the scrubby bushes along the steep eroded cliffs above a quick-flowing river. They sat on a grassy area overlooking the water. Peter lifted the chain over Jeannie's head and placed it around her smooth neck. Then he gently kissed her forehead, and the silver glistened in the sunlight. Thank you. She removed her sunglasses. Her eyes were tired and moist. A genuine gift from the heart. Are you happy with your career? Her chestnut hair, warmed by the sun, swung over his shoulder. My career has been successful. Let me rephrase. Are you happy? Her eyes swung up as she remained on his shoulder. There's a lacking that I just can't understand. Sometimes I feel as if my life is balanced. When is that? With friends, people who care. But I almost wish I had a more stable life. Peter hugged her with his arm, like a family. Oh, I think that's a lost dream. Oh, not always. She sat back and dropped the sunglasses over her eyes. I never pictured myself as the small-town type of gal. I dream that I have the depth of a family. Do you know what I mean? Peter's throat tightened. You know the old saying, no place like home. Sure, sure, it's true. The stability and the simple family relationships, even the people. All that's true, if you pursue it. She nodded as the river and the ocean beyond reflected in her sunglasses. He slid his hand over her hand, and again she let her hair rest on his shoulder. This woman's spirit had been manipulated and controlled by Ricardo. As she looked up, he kissed her again and continued as they fell back in the grass. 
He looked into her eyes and locked his body around her slender frame. You're safe with me. I'm not safe as long as Ricardo is alive. The sadness in her eyes winnowed into his heart. They sat up again. Let's not think about Ricardo. Well, not easily done. The beach and the hotel extended north below the mountains. Let's head below. Can't be more than a mile to the beach. Oh, I don't have my suit, she said as she stood. You won't need it, he said with a cunning grin. Really? He pulled her up. She took his hand and they hiked down the ridge trail through the bushes toward the sands below. The sound of the marching tide crashing against the gritty berm mixed with the seagull's chatter and grew louder as they approached. The hot gritty sand warmed his feet as they neared a weathered sign with bold orange letters. Pellegro. They found a spot on the grainy sand. He kept his arm around her jersey as the brisk ocean breezes ruffled his hair and shirt, a salient piece of mind and contentment which had been lost with Ricardo's abduction returned. He sensed she felt something similar. Her body remained warm even with the stiff wind. As the steady cadence of the breakers counted out time like a perpetual clock, the sun grew large as the day waned, and the wavering orange spears sat on the steely ocean horizon. She snuggled closer as twilight fell and dimmed the shore. Peter, don't let me go, he whispered in her ear and kissed her neck. She gazed upward through his arms and smiled. Something about you when you walked up to me at Capistrano. I don't understand it. You completely threw me. I never felt that before. I want you away from Ricardo. He could see the tension return as the lines tightened around her eyes. Then she nodded. I don't care about Ricardo. I've been in his clutches too long. I don't even care about my career. Peter held the silver and ivory chain in his hands. The dove means peace. Well, peace isn't easily attained. No, it's not. But you're going to have peace now, Jeannie. I'll make sure of it. I won't let him ruin your life anymore. She smiled and nestled her head into his chest. A few red and green boat lights blinked near the horizon, and occasionally a single-engine plane cut the silence. The stars brightened overhead, and the ever-present ocean tide broke steadily and reassuringly in the distinct blue twilight. Curtis and Sybil were laughing and playing cards in the yellow veranda light as Peter paid the taxi driver. He squeezed Jeannie's wrist. I think your secretary has found a friend. Well, that's funny. I wouldn't have put those two together. One of the servants brought them cold juice. They do seem to be having quite the time. Can I get you anything else, Miss Carlyle? It's the middle of the night, Rollo. Please, you're off duty. Thank you, Miss Carlyle. I'll see you in the morning. Take your time, Rollo. I'm sure it will be a late morning. Yes, Miss Carlyle, he said, and he headed back inside. They are having a good time, said Jeannie, sipping the juice. Well, good for him. And her, Sybil is a workaholic. Jean, said Sybil from the table. Well, you two seem to be having a party, said Jeannie, climbing the stairs. Curtis has his own way of playing, said Sybil, laughing. And it's not by the rules, I might add. Jeannie raised the glass to her lips. Glad to see you're relaxing, Sib. Do you think Ricardo would approve of us taking time off, asked Sybil. I don't want to talk about Ricardo right now. Yeah, well, that's because he's a Ferkeldima, said Curtis, and they all laughed. A what? said Jeannie, giggling. A Ferkeldima. What's a Ferkeldima? asked Peter, wiping his eyes. Curtis repeated the word, and they all cackled again. A guy who keeps everyone under his thumb. Sounds more like a guy who likes to Ferkel, added Jeannie. Everyone has to Ferkel, Curtis, said Sybil, pinching his cheek, and that made him grin. Curtis shrugged his shoulders. Heck, if I couldn't Ferkle. Ferkling makes the world go round, said Peter. Well, enough Ferkle. You can never get enough Ferkle, Curtis, said Jeannie. Jeannie stared back at Peter as she and Sybil headed inside to get some food. Peter told Curtis about his afternoon in the marketplace. Earlier, Curtis said he had played badminton with Sybil, and then they went swimming in the side pool. Peter turned as Jeannie and Sybil returned with food trays and fruit drinks. Someone produced a deck of cards, and for the next half hour, they played games of whist and rummy. Peter and Jeannie locked eyes from the beginning of the card game. He recognized the faint smile and the bright eyes. 
In the early morning hours, Peter stood, walked to her chair, and took her by the hand. Curtis and Sybil continued to deal cards and did not even notice them slipping back into the villa. He squeezed her thin frame as they climbed the stairs toward the second-floor bedroom. She turned at the top and leaped, wrapping her legs around him. He kissed her as he carried her into the bedroom. All of his time in Westerly with Jeannie overlapped with the present as they fell onto the bed. In the dim light, her dark eyes were intense, and he remembered how it used to be. But as he caressed her, he feared that he'd lose her again. They snuggled as dawn broke through the open window. She slowly opened her eyes in the sunlight and smiled as she held him. She rolled off the bed and took his hand. They moved into a green and white tile bath with an elevated hot tub. An open window overlooked the lush mountains and the azure Pacific beyond. Jeannie ran the water from a curved gold faucet. She poured several blue and aqua bottles into the tub, producing a puffy assortment of suds. The steam moved upward into the chilled morning air, and she extended her hand. They climbed upward and sunk slowly into the warm water. He pressed his body against her skin, softened by the perfumes and the soaps. She looked up and smiled. Ferkeldimer! He dunked her head down in the water, and when she bobbed up, she did the same thing to him. They leaned back in the tub, and their laughter echoed across the tiled bathroom. Then he lifted the dove necklace in his hand and ran his finger along the ivory. You're not wearing your wedding ring, Peter. No, I'm not. I don't want you to go back. I'm afraid you're going to leave me. How? By mule? She grinned but seemed tense. Hey, I'm not going anywhere, Jeannie. It's just you and me. It's all I care about now. I have money tucked away, Peter. Lots of cash Ricardo doesn't know about. Peter ran his fingers along her short hair and cheek. He shook his head. I don't need money. My only fear is him. How do I break his grip on me? can't stay here forever. Press will find out sooner rather than later, said Peter. We're working on that. Sybil has arrangements in place. They won't find us. I don't know. He's pretty persistent. Peter, I have enough assets to keep him at bay for a long time, as long as we're together. Peter nodded and focused on the foliage covering the mountain peaks in the sunshine, but he could not help think Ricardo had set things in motion back in the United States. Given his obsessive nature, Ricardo would do anything to make them both suffer. Chapter 26 After the morning shoot, Ricardo waited at the little stucco-walled bar for Martin and Mitchell. Why did Rodney persist in hanging around here annoying him when they'd already discussed the afternoon scene logistics? The film, without Jean in the lead role, had developed masterfully. She had become professionally and personally useless to him. Any luster had since worn off, and he viewed her like a rancid piece of food, ready to be tossed into the garbage pail. Martin passed through the doorway, and Mitchell followed behind. Rodney, I will have to ask you to leave. I have some pressing personal matters to take care of this morning. Well, what do you want to do about the countryside shots? asked Rodney. Ricardo spoke, looking over his shoulder as he moved toward Mitchell and Martin. You know what you're supposed to be doing? He moved quickly, meeting Martin first in the lounge. All right, what do you two have for me? Nothing, answered Mitchell, dipping into a snack food bowl on the bar. Well, why not? Mitchell wrung his hands. Ricardo, we've checked everywhere. Every cop in the city has been looking for Sturgis. Well, what about the bungalow? Nothing. Martin had an arrogant tone in his voice as he held Ricardo's arm. Listen, we may not be able to find him. Unacceptable. It's going to have to be acceptable. He pulled Ricardo down the bar. Let's get out of here now and get to Cibola. Martin, you never could hold up under the pressure. It's not a matter of pressure. It's a matter of survival. You take Sturgis too lightly. Oh, on the contrary, I take him all too seriously. This is insane. Ricardo's lips curled into a half smile. Martin, I've just about had it with you. Oh, and what are you going to do? Kill me like you've killed so many others who have died? Anyone who has died has been in a created world. Martin moved closer, but Ricardo raised his index finger. Is that your rationalization? Just because people are in other realities, they don't die as human beings? Are they inanimate objects? I don't know how things evolve into multiple realities, but what I do know is that the people you hurt are just as human, their lives just as real, and the pain still hurts. 
Ricardo could easily leave Martin behind in this reality. Justice would be served by flying to Cibola and instructing the entities to leave Martin helpless. He quickly passed Mitchell, now munching on more snack mix at the end of the bar. Mitchell! Yo! Come here! Mitchell jammed more snack mix into his mouth as he waddled over. Ricardo reached out and straightened his tie. Tell me where you think he is. Who? Sturgis, you idiot! Oh, he could be anywhere, he said as he chewed the morsels wedged between his yellow teeth. Finish eating, will you? You're grunting like a pig. I want every option explored. Where would he go? Is he back with Melvin Bornstein? We hired somebody to go check. I don't really care if he is back there. It's his suffering that I want. Well, maybe he went after her. Mitchell reached for another bowl of snack mix, but Ricardo grabbed his wrist. What are you saying? Mexico. Maybe he and the kid somehow got to Mexico. Ricardo released his grip, and Mitchell pulled in the bowl, scooped out a huge portion of the snack mix, and stuffed it in his mouth. How? How? Sturgis is a wanted man. He's a, he's a clever bastard. Yes, he is. If you're right, he could be there by now. Ricardo leaned against the bar and smiled as he crossed his arms. Yes, yes. He slowly nodded his head as he squinted. I want you to fly to Mexico, Mitchell. And pick him up? His head snapped to the right. No, not this time. I want an O.D. She won't wake up. Hey, murder is a very heavy charge, Ricardo. Not if you're paid well. I'll give you $100,000 if she's dead in 48 hours. Well, what about Sturgis? Oh, Sturgis will spend the rest of his natural or unnatural life mourning his genie, trying to clear his name in the maximum security Mexican jail cell. Peter, with Curtis, outwits Ricardo. And what of Jeannie and the hope of Peter and Jeannie together again? In Mexico, they find the peace they have long sought. Ricardo, obsessed and frantic, will use his men in whatever it takes to find them. Martin is strongly hinting at the ultimate way out through Cibola. Next week, the action-packed conclusion of A World Without Her. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Stay tuned. Same time, same Fitton on the air station as we see the results of Ricardo's crusade to destroy Peter Sturgis. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.